0: Hey, what's up, friends? My name is Andre, and you're listening to the Tennis in Bagels podcast, a podcast about everything tennis. And this is technically the second episode of uh, season two. We had a little bit of technical problems with the first one, but it's coming out and um, you're going to listen to it. But anyways, we're very excited to be here for season two. And we're excited. I'll be here a little bit concerned about um, the beginning of the season. Everything is still a little bit up in the air. Uh, And that's uh, pretty much what we're going to be talking about today. A little bit of uh, the current situation in Melbourne and moving on to see um, what do we think about the ATP Cup and, you know, the old debate about whether the ATP Cup is the same thing as the Davis Cup or not and what's its place in the tennis world and things like that. But um, before we begin, uh, let's pass it over to uh my first co-host that got into the podcast late september i think last year uh Vanj, how's it going man
1: yeah been great andre uh looking forward to this discussion about uh all the chaos going on at the australian open uh mm-hmm. and uh some atp cup talk later as well
0: so yeah, uh,
1: sure. excited yeah Yep,
0: yeah. and uh hey owen how's it going I'm doing great. Um
2: really looking forward to the start of the ATP Cup in the Australian Open. Hoping we get there without too many uh, COVID cases and issues. Um but yeah, really excited to be be here, doing well.
0: Nice. And if yeah. you notice something different, um a little bit of a an improvement is that uh, Owen got a new mic that I recommended him getting. And we're just moving forward in the podcast with a little bit more technical upgrades and things like that so we can uh, improve your experience in listening to it. So, yeah, we are excited to see um, and evolve and get this audio thing as as good as it can get. So um, thanks for uh, getting this mic, Owen. So in case anybody is wondering, it's called the Snowball. Um it's a very cheap mic it's, I mean not in quality but just in price is a very affordable USB mic if you want to start a podcast it's a pretty great, great place to start but enough of my talking Vanish take it away <laughs>
1: Snowball is a very good way to describe what's going on right now in <laughs> Melbourne Nice segue. So um but uh you know just just for our listeners who who are uh, uh you know some of you guys uh, are aware of the Australian Open you know it's one of the biggest tournaments one of the four biggest tournaments uh held every single year on the calendar. But given that we're in a pandemic right now, the situation is wildly, wildly different. And, um, you know, quite a lot of chaos, uncertainty. We can been, Three of us have been just waking up to, uh, you know, news after news of tennis players, uh, you know, being unhappy and Australian media, um, you know, the backlash that comes with posting on social media, the, the issues of the tournament director has to deal with, um, all kinds of business logistical re- things that uh, have gone a bit uh, sadly is to say it was some of it was predictable but a lot of it is unforeseen and you know unfortunate and whether it be lack of communication or um, you know unfairness across the board um, you know there's a lot of things that uh, let's just say both sides have reason to be upset about and so I guess we can start by explaining the situation a little bit so in Melbourne this year the way it was going to work obviously we had the US Open played in a bubble where um, you know players were in a separate bubble and they were, uh, you know, essentially in their own space and you know had some of them had private housing, but others were just kind of on site and you were hoping that it wouldn't spread to the community. And uh, you know there was COVID active COVID cases in the U.S. and uh, and same thing at the French Open really. So, but this is the first time that players are actually in a bubble where there's. Uh, where Melbourne is doing such a good job of protecting the virus that there's actually no virus in the community itself. So the players are essentially seen as a threat or to to however, however you you might want to call it, they're seen as a, you know maybe a danger to society, which is uh, unfortunately the way it is. But the way uh, Craig Tiley set this whole thing up is that a lot of costs went to the Australian Open from charter flights to food to travel to things like that. And essentially players and their teams, they were allowed to bring... Uh, one team team member with them, one to two team members uh, along with them. And they were essentially set up in the stations across the world, um, which is seven cities and 17 charter flights. They came in from LA, Miami, Dubai, Doha, you know, places like Turkey, where the, you know, and where uh, tournaments bef- the previous week were held. And so, you know, we saw a lot of players coming in. Actually, all the players had to come in via these charter flights. There were no commercial flights at all. Including the media members and uh, people who are commentators and things like that. And what was expected is that 72 hours before they emerged on those flights, um, they had to return a negative test or show that they don't have any symptoms. Uh, you know, uh, in the case of some players, there were some uh, there was a there was a case of viral shedding or something. But nonetheless, they were the Victorian government deemed that they were safe to go ahead. And this was all paid for by Tennis Australia and. You know, essentially, these players all came in on planes, and we were all hoping that by the time they get to Melbourne, you know, there wouldn't be a positive case or there wouldn't be a positive test result. And unfortunately, that wasn't the case. We learned on the first day or first couple, two, three days, for some of these, depending on when these flights arrived, uh, the flights from Doha, Abu Dhabi. These flights, by the way, were 25% capacity, so the risk was, you know, somewhat minimized uh, by Tyley and his team, so that these players were staying in their cohorts on the plane. And, uh, you know, hoping that they don't test positive upon arrival. But of course, we know the way this vir- virus works and um, it can be transmit- transmitted, uh, you know, it's quite unpredictable the way it can be transmitted. And so we learned that in some cases, it wasn't even the players. It was the, like for one of the flights, it was the flight attendant who tested positive. Uh, or the coach, like the coach of Bianca and Rescue, who also tested uh, positive upon arrival. And so as a result of that, 72 players were forced into, co- into hard quarantine. Now, um, Tylee and his team has have worked diligently, extremely hard the past few months before this Australian Open to try to negotiate with the public health officials in Victoria to allow these players five hours a day to train on the court. And that training time is essentially divided into gym time, practice time on the court, and uh, food. And it's essentially super strict. You basically have, you know... Uh, a person come in from the Victorian government that escorts these players to these courts and they're in full PPE gear. You know, from the ventilators to the masks to everything to like just fully covered because there's they don't want any spread in the community, understandably so. And so this is a this was a, a big advantage that the players really negotiated for to get that practice time in. You know, they've trained it so hard for the last eight to ten weeks over this off season. But what happened is that um we 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 learned that because of the cases that were on the plane. The whole plane was forced to quarantine for 24, 24 hours a day, 14 days strictly. And so that means that 200 people, 72 players in the competition, which is almost 25% of the uh, of the total players playing the Australian Open, are forced to stay in their rooms in a confined space for 14, 14 hours a day. I mean, 24 hours a day, 14 days in a row. So you can understand the frustration and the complaints that are being Uh, put forth by these players that uh, some of them were not aware of the situation that if somebody on the plane tests positive, the whole plane has to actually go into isolation and not just that one section of them and their cohorts. So I'm curious. I mean, what did you guys make of this whole debacle?
2: Um, So I think um, we are seeing a lot of the issues of holding a massive athletic event or event in general during a pandemic, because as you said, Font Australia is doing a great job handling the pandemic I checked the numbers and I think Yesterday on, or today They had just five new cases of COVID in the entire country And And while that's great It also means there's very very little Margin for error with this If the Australian Open were to cause an outbreak It could be really catastrophic um, And would really be a waste of the hard work that a lot of the people in Australia have put in to contain this pandemic, so it's so these measures taken by tennis Australia I think are incredibly important. You mentioned the uh, the close contact situation on the plane, they were full to just 25% capacity. And I think a couple of players mentioned that they weren't aware that the whole plane would have to quarantine. They were told that the only close contacts would be their cohort. But we also saw a couple photos of um, players mingling on the plane, or um, one player in particular unmasked. And obviously, the close contact Situation only applies if you stay close to a certain group of people, um, and so it's. Not, but regardless, it sounds like there was some miscommunication from Tennis Australia there, and so I think while. It should have been expected that there was a chance that players would have to hard quarantine. You have to feel for the players who are in hard quarantine regardless, because they're not going to be able to train. By the time they get out, it's just going to be a couple days before the ATP Cup, I think. Players have mentioned risk of injury if they have that little time to practice, um, risk of not having match fitness. So while I don't really think either side has mishandled things, we're in a difficult situation regardless, because... That's just the nature of holding an event in a pandemic, I think, unfortunately.
0: Yeah, I think um, the more we try to talk about it, the less I think it's possible to find a culprit or uh, a wrong side or or a right side in in this. It just feels like everyone kind of just kind of went with the flow and never really knew what was happening. And that was definitely an hour what we would expect to for it to happen during the time of a pandemic and things like that, especially in Australia where, where things are so much more strict. I don't know if I, if I were, um, maybe a player or a person that, you know, had to be there. I feel like I would be really concerned just to, um, am I going to be able to do things and things like that? I would probably have thought of it twice because it's so strict in there. Like, um, even Australians themselves are not being able to come back home. Um, Granted, uh, a few of them uh, kind of took a little bit of a uh, of time to to get there, but like it's 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 where they live. It's where the nationality lies. On it's not a tennis player where they get like um like a special visa, I think, for travel in that in that regard. But um, it's it definitely feels like things it 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 mis- it was a miscommunication from everyone else. Like um uh, maybe maybe us tennis Australia wasn't um fully able to make sure that everybody knew what was going on. By the time that they boarded on the plane, um, in the fact that, in, in the sense that uh, apparently there was a call and that players should have been able to attend, we've got like mixed information from different players saying that some of some of them said that they knew about it, some of them said that they were expecting that this could happen, some of them said it's like, hey, listen, I thought I was going to happen, my, have my five hours now, uh, now I can't because there was something that I wasn't aware of, so there is definitely something there like some something definitely got got lost in uh in translation or whatever how you name it so definitely feels like the protocols inside of uh the bubble were pretty clear but the protocols in terms of making everybody know the protocols were were not as well uh explained to everybody and tennis is a tough tough uh sport because it's the same problem for for everything in tennis is that um players are not, um, contract, they don't have a contract with an agency or a team, so they're independent. So, if you want to reach, um, each, um, you know, per- persona, if you, if you will like to, that is part of that, uh, community, a part of the profession, you have to reach e- each player's team individually. And you can see, like, how that can become extremely, um difficult to manage. It's like in in a in a Grand Slam that drives 128 players. Then you multiply that by 2 uh, because you have like uh WTA, a ATP, which are not the same organization. And then you have the qualies and then you have people who are coming for uh whatever. Uh the lucky losers if they if they they're still there. So, you know, there's a lot of communication to manage and in that, in that in that case, like thinking of all of that, it may make sense a little bit that information got kind of lost in there. But it's definitely very regretful that um, um, the situation has arrived. And it's really nobody's fault in a way, but it's definitely someone's fault, you know, if you know what I mean. Yeah, it's just I, a tough, complex situation.
1: I, I, I perfectly understand. I totally agree with both of you. And I think that uh, the miscommunication is on, you know, communication is a two-way street, right? If you think about it, it's... Not just one party. So I think that uh, you know some of the players were aware that the situation could happen, and some some of them, like uh, if you noticed, uh, Artem Sadiq, Artem Sitak, something like that. Artem Sadik, I don't want to butcher his name, but he's a he's a doubles player, and he uh, posted like a video on Twitter um, explaining the situation that he was aware that this could could happen, but he was just hoping it wouldn't. And so that that mindset just um, you know made it. He just knew that, uh, you know, I'm going to have to stick it out for these 14 days. And it was always a possibility. But I came here with knowing that risk, you know. And I think Tennis Australia, uh, you know, definitely sent out emails. And they uh, they had, like, calls. And, you know, some players weren't able to attend or they didn't, they didn't attend it for whatever reason. And I think the way that Craig Tiley frames things, um, you know, he's a businessman. So he's going to try to put it as in a way that isn't super crystal clear. Clearly written that you know if you test positive on on one of the one of the planes the whole plane is in jeopardy versus just that section and so i think i can clearly understand why there might have been a miscommunication there for some players and they they might have been misled um in, in that way because he, he probably would have mentioned it that uh it's up to the hands of the victorian government to deal with the situation you know since he's working directly with them and so the Victorian government decides who is a close contact and who isn't on the plane. And, you know, I'd imagine if it's the flight attendant, it's probably safe that the whole plane is going to be forced to quarantine because the flight attendant, you know, basically walks up and down the uh, the main aisle. So, you know, that to me is like a, like an exposed risk right there. But uh, I can just totally understand where the players are coming from and their frustration. And I absolutely think, you know, some of the backlash that they were getting was a little bit unfair. I don't think any of the players really posted anything that catastrophic. I mean, some of them were, you know, taking a little bit of a hit at the tournament and saying like, oh, I don't think I, I would have gone if I had known this. But I, I, I highly doubt that, in my opinion, because I think the incentives are so big, you know, to play this tournament, $100,000 for a loser in the first round, which is a huge increase from ever before, you know, and this is in a pandemic year. So I think from that from that standpoint um I I think the players would could have most of those players I think would have gone regardless but it's just that uh, you know they weren't prepared for it mentally and so it must be just just a huge shock to, yeah, I, you know all that momentum is snapped from your off season and you're being forced to essentially reinvent the way you're training
0: Yeah that is so, yeah, true I ahead.
1: think
2: um I think Andre something you said um the situation is so complex that I really do think it it can seem that there might not be any blame to us ass- to assign that like it's no one's fault. And this might sound harsh, but I actually think you can assign blame to both parties here. I think, um Vaunt, like you said, uh Tylee might be a businessman, but to say that if someone tests positive only a section of the plane would have to quarantine when in reality it would be the entire plane, I feel like that's not a business move that is a direct miscommunication there and I well, well I just to, just to
1: be clear he didn't he didn't specifically say that the best that the only that section of the plane would quarantine he more so said that it's up to the hands of the victorian government oh, okay. um, it's it's out of my control essentially it's up to whatever they decide is the best move to do that but i, I see uh, okay it?
2: yeah that, that that makes more sense but it, it did seem like some players were unclear on that so maybe yeah and and so i think where the blame on the players lies is um they some of them apparently didn't show up for this call and or didn't while, check the
1: emails and yeah you know pdfs that were sent out because right, those yeah. are big documents and and, and I, the thing is you don't expect the players to be fully on top of this stuff, you know? I mean, they've got a lot on their plate, so that's why they have agents, so they have teams. Yeah, and and you would expect those people to inform them
2: on that. And while it is a lot of information, this is is traveling to Australia, a country that's handling the pandemic well. Like... During this pandemic, that has killed, I think, upwards of 2 million people worldwide. And this reminded me of something that, uh, Tonga said to me on Twitter, which is, um, if, if you're traveling to a country like the Sam Query situation, you need to be prepared for the worst case scenario during this pandemic. Uh, like Sam Query wasn't prepared for, uh having being separated from his family in the hospital which was pretty much the worst case scenario and he did something unacceptable which was skip out on a private jet while po- covid positive positive. and these players a lot of them frankly didn't seem to be prepared for the hard 14 day quarantine which i think they should have known was a possibility tough conditions uh notwithstanding
0: yeah and and seriously i feel like um i would have probably like the way that i i see uh COVID, like personally and how i kind of uh try to keep my mind on is it's a virus that spreads through air so if you if you if you know anything about that like it's it's, it works like the flu in a sense right if you're in if you're in a space the chances that you're going to get in a transmission that you're going to get infected are higher if if it's a closed space so for example um cases of the flu are much higher during winter because people are all close together in in the same space so I would imagine uh, if I were one of them, it's just like, well, if I'm in the plane for 12 to 18 hours, it's very likely that if somebody's positive, I would very much be in danger. So it may, it would make sense. I mean, I'm not saying that uh, it's the player's fault. That 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 they would be like, oh yeah, I just for for taking things at face value because it, as you said, it's also a business. A business. So if things are explained to you a certain way, then you might want to consider them that way and not the other. So. Yeah, I, think, it, yeah. Yeah, I, I think yeah, yeah, but yeah. I totally mean, right. I feel like the, the the only the only setback I find it's that um, he, he definitely thinks feels like um, a lot of players, for example, because here's the thing. I I think I believe that you must complain about those things, right? If if players would just be like they were just like, oh yeah, no, that's fine, we're fine, like whatever, just whatever you give us, I'm just happy to play. It can be dangerous for them in next in the next circumstances because it could send a message for all other tournaments to be like, yeah. So the the Australian Open was sloppy, so it means that we can whatever give whatever as well. Like they won't care. So I feel like it's on their rights as um, professionals to you know request that work be done seriously and in a, in a well thoughtful well thought out manner. But at the same time, it feels like they kind of don't have any sort of like a uh grace uh like a gray area, in know it would be like, Hey, listen, we understand that this was bad, we're gonna take it this time, and whatever we know that this is rough would just be like to uh, to say that we are frustrated because of that, but that's it, like I feel like this would be like a much better message in a sense,
1: yeah, so i completely understand where both of you guys are coming from. I think back to Owen's point that as a player and as a uh, a member of one of these teams of these players, you need to be completely aware of the situation in that country that you're going to and think of all the worst possible outcomes that could happen and be mentally ready for them, you know? And so I think, uh, you know, this is a, this is a lesson learned, you know, in these crazy unprecedented times. And I think you can't fault, uh, you can't fault either of the parties here, but I do also think, um, for instance, a situation that I was, it's a little bit like this happens before. This is not the first time this has happened in tennis. You know, it's a little bit like when, Maria Sharapova was caught doping for meldonium, and uh, you know it was a it was a drug on that list for legally for the last fifteen years. But then on January first of that year, it was removed from that list, and she claimed that she hadn't seen the emails or read the uh, or she or her team had not realized that it was uh, on the banned list. And so as a result of that, um, you know a lot of uh, players uh, from Russia, including her, tested positive for it. But so it's it's one of it's one of those cases like that where you know communication uh, is so tough across the board. But I feel like uh, with leading to the backlash, the players do have a right to complain in the sense, especially if you're you know stuck in a room uh, where you know you don't have the proper like there's there's certain things to complain about and there's certain things to that are less acceptable in my opinion. For instance, the players I found the players that were complaining about the food, for instance, on the first day. Like, I was told they had $100 of money, you know, as a (laughs) donation by Tennis Australia that they could get Uber Eats or they could get, you know, different meals if they didn't like the food there. And so I think, uh, you know, just the tone and the way it came across, maybe, uh, and not expecting the way that Australians would, you know, backlash on it and, you know, say that, you know, shut up, guys, like, you know, you're getting paid $100,000 and I haven't seen my family in whatever so-and-so months. And... You know, I mean, you kind of understand where they're coming from, too, as well. Like, they have zero cases, and they're doing a great job containing the virus. And then you kind of... But then you feel like it's a little bit unjustified, a bit harsh for them to lash out like that. They don't know what it's like for a tennis player as well, you know? So used to a certain regimented routine of, uh, you know, training and practicing. And, you know, they couldn't have predicted this. They, they, th- this is not their intention. But at the same time, the players... That's why I give them kind of an incentive to complain. And I think once they realized, after after the first couple of days of, like, complaining that we're receiving this backlash, they all stopped. You noticed, uh, uh, if you noticed, uh, what's her name, Cornet? she put up an apology letter two days later saying that, uh, you know, I'm really sorry. I, I didn't know it was going to come across like this. Um, I'm very grateful. And I've heard many players also say that they're extremely grateful. It's unfortunately the, f- the few five or six that, you know, tweet on Twitter and then the whole tennis ecosystem is basically perceived in that light that they're spoiled and entitled, when I don't think that's actually representative of the whole population. You know, there's 350 tennis players there. If five or six decide to put up a tweet, you know, I mean, what are you going to, you know, say that all tennis players are entitled? I mean, I don't think that's how it is, right? And so, you know, you see situations like that, or some some situations were completely deserving of complaining. Like if Yulia Putin-Seva has mice in her room, I mean that's unsanitary. That's unhealthy at that point. How are you going to sleep? How are you going to, you know, how are you going to eat in the room? How are you going to do those those kind of basic basic things even to survive for those fourteen days? You can't, you know, some players have it easier than others. Some players can have maybe have a bigger space, or they don't have a, you know, their room is conducive to some training that they can do. Some some can't even open their window, so it's it's very different across the board. I feel like.
2: Yeah, I think I think you both touched on some great points there. I think on the one hand you have these players who are in a 14 day hard quarantine. Many of them didn't expect it. And you do have uh, Putin Seva has mice in her room. That is totally complaint, complaining-worthy conditions. But then on the other side of things, you have the Australian citizens, who many of whom have been through this, some of whom are stuck outside the country, can't see their families. And so I think when they see these – and uh, and I think it should also be mentioned that some of these players coming in have caught COVID in the past – some of whom didn't follow guidelines, uh, have been pictured not following guidelines. So I think these many of these Australians who are already kind of struggling with the concept of maybe letting in a dog who wasn't completely house-trained uh, in the case of these players with following COVID guidelines are now seeing these players complain about their $100 for Uber Eats and everything. And yeah. and so I think like that could be a total slap in the face for them. And so I totally understand their backlash as well but andre it's... i also think you made a great point about players having the right to complain so that majors in the future that are played under this conditions won't played under these conditions won't like toss them around basically and throw them to the wolves so again i think there's there's merit on both sides i think in an ideal world players would kind of accept the conditions that they were under but i unfortunately don't really think that's realistic
0: hmm. yeah, yeah like th- there's one the uh one thing about um and that that and was actually saying that it stuck to me is the fact that like the a lot of those players are just like posting stuff on like Instagram and things like that right uh, or Twitter yeah for those who are more active there but like is it is it is a problem about it right you're in the middle of a thing that is causing pain to a lot of a lot of people even if it's not necessarily like disease related um and you, you're gonna make fun about things like the food in your hotel is bad I mean there's a there's a lot of things that are just tone deaf, and and that's definitely yeah. where you can say like, oh yeah, you guys are just like entitled brats. You're yeah, the food thing, like,
1: the food thing to me didn't make any sense because I'm like, that was that was just it's I'm just like, like for example,
0: if you if yeah. you're just like a regular person, like for example, even if you're like a YouTuber, a vlogger thing, like you do, and you complain about like whatever weird food that you see like in, in in some things, that's that's one thing. But like when you complain about the food because this um. this you know this organization kind of like try to move heaven and earth and convince an entire country's government to make you come in and then you're going to complain about how you only have an apple for 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 (laughs) for for your um for your dessert like i mean that's that's very much like you know but obviously the 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 cherry on top of the cake was definitely uh tomic's girlfriend but that's not even worth talking about it that's just absurd absurdly ridiculous honestly that's it doesn't even deserve a <laughs> space, I guess, like for, for speaking. Uh, but I feel like the, uh, when it, when it comes to complain, you must complain to the right, um, parties, right? You, you cannot complain to your followers on social media. What are we going to do? Like, <laughs> <I> mean, <laughs> even if we're on Australia, we have even less power to talk to talk anything through, um, you know, let alone like have you, you know, going to be like, just like flood tweet, um, create highly and be like hey give those players better food they deserve it like that's not gonna cut it right you, you must complain to the right people and that's that's the the problem that i think they're yeah. they just got they just got stuck in the social media game i don't know if it's just because lots of them are just young um gen Zetters, not not anything against you guys but like um, yeah <laughs> it, you know just true. follow the proper procedures you're a professional you're be serious about it, you know? If there's something that you don't like that is about your job, don't complain it on social media.
2: Yeah, <laughs> Lots of regular
0: that, people would actually lose their jobs if it did it.
1: You know, I, I find that, yeah, I mean, in social media, you, you tend to also elicit a lot of, uh, how do you say, social media is one of those where you get responses from both sides. It really values the extremes, you know what I mean? Like, it favors the people who have extreme opinions. And so, I think when you do something like that, you're basically inviting people. Uh, a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of support, but you're also inviting a lot of backlash. And ultimately the backlash just supersedes the support. And I think that's what happens um in situations like this. And I, I totally agree with you. I mean, why put it on social media? You know, if you're, you know, something like that, you know, why not just go to Tylie directly? I think that's what Tylee was also mentioning in one of the calls later when he found out about uh, all these complaints is like, why not just come to me? Don't go to social media because now you're ruining my reputation as well. And you know I've I've worked tireless nights for the last whatever you know months to put this thing on, and you know you're complying You you guys have complied and agreed to so much. Now don't ruin this for us at the last moment. And so I think, but I also do think I also do think the media in Australia, is, if you look at Channel Nine News and you look at all these videos that were coming through on Twitter, it's like they're really sensationalizing this thing. You know, they're really like they're taking every drop of this thing so literally and so seriously. They're taking it like. It's like these tennis players, you know, they're like these, like, like, you know what I mean? And they're lumping in like Tomek's girlfriend with it. And it's, which is like, she's, she's just so out of the, you know, so out of touch with reality. But really she's like, you know, what did you expect? She's like the, she was on like reality TV and she's like one of those, uh, you know, one of those, one of those uh, vloggers who just, uh, you know, got into, got got into the social media game and is just kind of, uh, you know, with. You know, in that bubble with with uh, with Barney, who we know is a little bit, uh, you know, has crazy, had his problems. Has had his uh, has had his problems to begin with. So it's good finally that he ha- he at least has a you know a girl that he can yeah. <laughs> he can have in his life that kind of lead the way. But hey, you know, I mean, Bernie, we know we know Bernie, and we know we know what he's like. So I mean, some of this is just really sensationalized. I feel.
0: Yeah,
2: uh, Andre, mm-hmm. I couldn't agree more with what you said on social media. And Vonch, you made a good point about um tiley mentioning like don't tag me on twitter like if tiley doesn't want to respond to something 10 retweets are not going to make him respond a thousand retweets aren't going to make him respond so they should just go to him directly and yeah like i think and like andre like you said we, we are tennis fans we don't work for tennis australia so all, all we can do is uh basically help give it more exposure and blow it out of proportion i think like they should not be going to their I don't know, 50,000 fans who live, like, scattered across the world. Um, We can't do anything about it. All we're going to do is create negative press for everyone involved. So I think they should just go to Tyler or Tennis Australia directly and say, like, hey, I think we could do with a bit better treatment here. Or, like, it would be nice to, um like, have more training. Even if these requests aren't realistic, the the place for them is not Twitter.
0: Yeah. Which leads us probably to the Djokovic letter, right? Ugh. Which, by the way, wasn't meant for social media. I'm pretty sure. No, yeah, I, I'm kind <laughs> of surprised it got released.
1: Yeah, so so here's the thing: is that I think you you guys hit the nail on the head. But the the Djokovic letter thing, uh, before we mention that, I think it's important to explain the situation that actually happened with Adelaide, because we've 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 seen this, we've seen the um, situation in Melbourne, but you can see why the players would be you know, would be, quite frankly, really, really pissed at what's going on. Because here's the way Tylee framed it, essentially, in the beginning, the situation in Adelaide. 1,250 players, or 1,250 people were allowed on the Melbourne site in these hotels, the Grand Hyatt and a couple other hotels where they were being forced to stay. The maximum limit that the government could allow was 1,200. So now the question is, who are these 50 people and how are you going to choose them? And so uh Tiley and the government in Australia, they were working together and they came up with a conclusion that let's go to Southern Australia, um and let's see if we can have some players quarantine there. And at first the quarant- at first the Southern Government of Australia it's a different state. I'm forgetting the name now of the state, but yeah, it's 'cause it's called South Australia, I think, where Adelaide is. And uh, you know, they basically said, like, what's it in it for us, you know? You know, what's it what's What's in it for us if we let these fifty players come in? And the way I the way I understood it, it was kind of a negotiation. They said that uh, well, we have this big tennis center that we're opening up in Adelaide, uh, where we want, where we're looking to make some money, and you know, it'll some of that money will go towards Tennis Australia, and it will help offset the loss that you're having from the Australian Open, as well as Adelaide can help promote this great great, great game of tennis, and we can have some funding, and we can have hold more tournaments in the future. So, you know, why don't you bring your top stars, which being the top three players on the men's and women's side, or essentially the biggest stars in the game? I think top three rankings is what he said, but really we know it's the biggest stars in the games. You know, players like Serena, who was allowed to bring, you know, obviously your practice partner Venus, and then you have Halop and you have um, Osaka on the women's side, and then on the men's side, you know, you have like Team and Nadal and Djokovic, and they're all coming in on this, from what I understand, like a private jet where you know, they they have so much more space in their rooms. And they essentially have five hours of training where they can go and play tennis, but they also have separate time where they're allowed to go into the gym. And they have, like, balconies in their um, their places where they're staying. And they're going to be playing this exhibition event on June 29th. Uh, what happened is that Novak Djokovic, oh, sorry, Jan 29th, January 29th, And so I think uh, Novak Djokovic initially refused. And he's, he's if you've been following Djokovic lately, he's been trying to represent the players. He's been trying to uh, speak on the behalf of all these players. And they kind of see him as a, uh, you know, at least those who agree with the PTPA, they see him as a a good leader for these top guys because he speaks out on a lot of matters now. And so, you know, he's like, that's his thing now. And so he said that I'm going to go to Melbourne, you know, why don't, why don't we bring, why don't I come to Melbourne and, he actually volunteered. He said, you know, this isn't fair. And so he he thought of, you know, asking that directly to Tiley. And But but Tylee refused and said that, no, we can't, you know, it's been done by the government. It's been arranged. We can't go back on it. And so essentially, he's watching the situation happening in Melbourne. And he's thinking, okay, why don't I e- send an email to Tylee? This email that he had were these lists of suggestions on how to make the situation more equal across the playing field. And this included things like, you know, fitness and training material in all rooms, decent food, you know, reduce the days of isolation, the permission. The problem with this letter is that his ideas were sound, and I think uh, his intention was great. But the problem is that you're living in Australia, and so it came across as a bit tone deaf, came across as a bit like, you know. Are you, are you really sure? Like, they're not going to do any of the stuff that you're, you're asking, you know? So you got to frame it better. And especially his last proposal, which I thought was like, there's no way, Jose, this is happening. Novak, which is move as many players as possible to private houses with a court to train. It's like, dude, really? You think that's going to happen? So I think, you know, and I, and I think he, he wasn't intending for this to get leaked, but I think it was, um, it was an email that he actually sent, but then, uh, this Twitter account, it's called Punt de Break. Uh, It was called Punto de Break and it was leaked uh, by this uh, Spanish journalist and he put it out there and suddenly now, you know, they're like, there's so much backlash against Novak for this letter that's perceived as tone deaf, but in reality, he's just, you know, trying to make the situation a little, he's trying to speak up for the players, but in doing so, he kind of just shot himself in the foot again, you know, like he's been doing the past year with his PR gaffes.
2: Th- thanks for giving all the context. I think you painted a really good picture there, um, and I, like I've seen some debate over on this of whether Novak's list was were like suggestions or demands. Some people said they were demands, and that wasn't okay. And I like for me, that's not the issue. I think the issue is. That Australian citizens are going to see this list, which wasn't intended to be leaked. And they're going to remember Djokovic as the guy who designed and led the Adria tour, which did not follow COVID guidelines and resulted in several cases. And now they're seeing the same guy suggest that the days of isolation are reduced. You said that was on the list, right? Yeah, and like that—that that is not based in science. 14 days is recommended by the CDC and other health organizations. And Australia, who has done a great job with uh, containing COVID with their strict measures, are going to see this. And I think rightfully many of them would sort of freak out over it. And, um, and I think Djokovic deserves all the cred- credit in the world for trying to look out for his fellow players. I think he arguably does that better than anyone. Um, but I think it really hurts him that this list was leaked because... I don't think it matters how he intended it now. Now everyone's seen it and like and they see the things on it. They don't like Australian Australians aren't going to care that he was trying to help players. They're going to care that he maybe wants to change guidelines in their country. And I think so I think uh it, it's just turned into another mess unfortunately.
1: Yeah, and I think one one other thing to add really quickly uh and then uh Andre you can give your input here as well. But I think that uh uh they were actually insulted. The players in Adelaide were told that you cannot post anything on social media. Did you did you actually know that? That they said that uh, this thing is, you know, because this was a last minute agreement. You know, posting on social media would make those players, like, imagine the players in Melbourne when they're seeing like Djokovic on his balcony every day and these fans coming in, and you know, all, like you can just imagine as a player, like, already there, already there's unfairness at the top of the sport. You know, already there's. Uh, these players who have rightfully earned their position, you know, they're they're at the top of the game for the reason, I mean, they sell all the tickets, they're, you know, they're the biggest stars, and, you know, tennis is a star-driven sport, and it's, you know, it's skewed towards the top guys, we know that, they get the better scheduling, they get the better treatment when it comes to match times, they get the better, uh, they even get uh, sometimes more recovery, they get better you know, they get to play on center court they get, you know arguably the prize money is all skewed at the top, they get there's more under this under the, the cover negotiations that we don't know about that could have happened at the U.S. Open. When I remember, like Serena and uh, Djokovic, like Serena actually got the court delivered to her, and she was training on the U.S. Open courts even before the rest of the players got it. So, but here's the thing: is that this time it's very, very clear in front of the players. You know, it's very clear that uh, that. And then when Tylee was asked about it, he said that that uh, you know essentially these are the biggest stars of the game, and uh, and we're 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 going to promote them. How about you know? They've won a Grand Slam. The rest of the players haven't. And the fact that he was so blunt about it, I yeah, thought it really surprised me. That was not a good PR move. Because because it wasn't a good PR move. Because his initial PR move was like, hey, you know, if he had just stuck to his initial one, which was that, okay, here, these are the players. We're we're getting them because we're doing the exhibition. Why not just stick to that? And, st- and why change that at the last minute and then suddenly, you know, suddenly cause the stir? I think that was a little bit misguided from Tylee, if I'm being honest what do you think
0: yeah i mean i feel like uh we had this conversation also on on uh on our group chat uh me and bunch especially it's like there's a whole lack of a pr system uh in tennis for lots of players and the the two players at least like that get talked a lot about but they just refuse to enter are roger federer and rafa nadal now, obviously roger federer is is not uh in australia right now is a uh, has a knee injury he's, Probably going to play in Rotterdam uh, later. Uh, but Actually, Doha. It's still, it's been confirmed. Doha. Yeah, yeah, it's true. It's Doha. And Nadal yeah. is set up to play in Rotterdam. Yeah, um, but in any case, um,
1: but I, I see what you're saying. I mean, they don't, they don't really speak up on but yeah matters like, th- like this. This is
0: the 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 one PR move, and I'm not saying that everybody should follow it, but like that's how Nadal and Federer have decided to to lay to um to to follow their careers is by just not saying anything, and not really getting into the social media game, and not really discussing matters with people you know maybe that maybe after they retire they can uh, be a little bit more blunt about things that they think or not i don't know it depends on whatever they think but in the case of like a, a Djokovic and things like that Djokovic, he's not just gonna shut up like i mean and even if he does it's probably gonna be even worse for him he's he would have uh he'd be probably accused of hiding or something like that or um so i feel like there's a lot of um there's a lot of crisis, and for sure, like in, at first, it's a lot of things that aren't getting out of control and really fast. And there's a lot of uh, PR moves that are just bad. And uh, there's also the problem with the, the fairness in tennis, which is kind of like it's probably the most pronounced right now than it has ever been. Not really just because of the prize money, but because of just. Um, Luxuries that they they get as, uh as the top players, and it just it just seems that they cannot converse in a way that um, makes everybody look like they're just trying to get a better deal for the players and for the tournaments. It's not like it's it's just like they're everything that they do is coming across as if they are just entitled. Even even for Craig Tiley when they said, like, hey, "Listen, it's just it's just the business." Like it literally sounds like hey i just care about money <laughs> that's all i care about i don't i couldn't give less of a crap about like if players only get for get, get 14 days in quarantine like with with mice in their rooms Yeah, and, and like, the thing
1: is we don't we know that yeah. he actually he he's much more kind than that we know that he he cares oh, yeah about that's just, for sure but that's why that's but why it was so surprising yeah. that's why it was so surprising yeah. to me that he had made that statement because it's it yeah. seemed like he he let the cat out of the bag like oh don't say that, Craig. You know,
0: it's kind of I wonder if he just too PR tired, move. just hadn't haven't had a couple of days. Of I, sleep I wonder the same thing. Kind of, yeah. I, I, yeah. I mean, the, the guy has
2: to be as overworked as heck. Yeah. This is yeah. this whole yeah. thing has had to be a logistical light,
0: nightmare. Oh yeah, absolutely. It, it already is without the pandemic, imagine. Yeah, that. exactly. Yeah,
1: yeah so I, I'll cut him a little bit of slack for that, and I think, uh, you know, and, and I think, uh, yeah, I think we I think we covered everything from from Adelaide and yeah. the situation in Melbourne. Couple yeah. of bad news for a couple of players is Andy Murray will not be in Australia
0: because he tested yeah. positive. Uh, so and he, I think that the main reason hope. that he couldn't go to Australia was because he couldn't find a way to get to Australia. Yeah, right.
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah. because he contracted COVID in London and then he was unfortunately yeah. so he couldn't, he
0: couldn't stuck hop on with the, the charter Yeah, it.
2: I saw on Twitter he was out getting coffee, so he must have been cleared to go out. But so it yeah. definitely stands up that the issue wasn't COVID, but finding a way to Australia.
1: Yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. And then um, yeah, same thing with. Uh, Paula Bedosa. I think that really h- highlighted to me that uh, you know, I mean, she tested negative in Abu Dhabi and on the plane and upon arrival, but then seven days in quarantine because they're testing these players every single day, she suddenly tests positive.
2: Yeah, and and that's why the quarantine is fourteen days. Just,
1: you just don't know. I mean, like she didn't even get out of her room and she tested positive. So
2: yeah, it's who knows it, what may have happened. You know? That's
1: the thing about this virus is you just
2: don't know. Yeah, and it stresses mm-hmm. why the 14-day quarantine is so important. Because if she didn't helps, leave her room, yeah. it means she picked it up before. But as we know with the virus, mm-hmm. it multiplies. And there, there's a period where you can have it, but it's not in—it's not present in a large enough quantity to be detected by a test. And that's why you mm-hmm. need to take tests over and over and over a longer period of time. So it's good that the quarantine caught it. Um, but yeah, that, that must have been tough for her. Because I'm sure she yeah, didn't yeah. expect it.
1: No doubt but about think... that. But here, here's the yeah. other thing also, is that you think these players are in quarantine right now? I mean, obviously, I think physically they're as fit as they're—they're they're pretty fit. They had three weeks of, you know, timing. There's certain things you can do in your room. You can stretch. You can do some workouts. You saw what Schubiantek was doing with the, you know, little things on the on the ground and some players hitting against the wall, like Benches was hitting against the glass, and you know, <laughs> players hitting against the mattress. You had like some really cool social media, like Cuevas, you know, surfing, surfing all the over the bed, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so so stuff like that. So we, we get to see this new creative side of players where they really have to invent and i think coming back from this quarantine you could either go two ways i think they could come out of this thinking you know what let's make the best of the situation yes there's atp cup yes there's all these events but australia is the main thing right and australia is going to start you know 7 to 9 days from now and so we still have 7 to 9 days i can choose to play these events not play these events there's not much pressure on me either way you know even if i lose in the first round i'm making a lot of money and uh, essentially mm-hmm. uh, and essentially if i get out of this quarantine you know, I'm, I'm not. I don't want to say scot free, but it's much more lax after that. Like they're, they're basically living normal 2019 life right now in Australia. Imagine going to, imagine going from this hard, strict thing to suddenly going to be able to sit in restaurants without a mask. Like it's it's going to be a total 360 degree shift. And so I think yeah. I think the players have that. Per, some players right now, if you look at the way their their outlook on social media has changed, they have a more positive perspective. And you're starting to see yeah. that they they realize that hang on this might not be so bad after all I, the the pressure is not on me when I come out of this this uh, this situation and I can I can use that to my advantage and I can actually perform well because uh, there's not going to be as much te- not going to be as much uh, press expectation
0: mm-hmm. and so
1: I think it could it yeah. could actually be a positive for these players and for other yeah. players who who need the rhythm and who need the the reps it must be. It must be really hard, but at least you're not straight going into a major.
0: Yeah, I think that my main takeaway, not necessarily takeaway, but like my main wish, I guess, for especially Australian Open and the whole uh, series of events happening down under (laughs) is the fact that I think where I I would hope that um, while all the PR and learning how to behave on social media, it's more of a long term learning curve rather than just kind of like a a a momentum shift it's it's but i do hope that like all those players they they come out healthy and not just COVID but like avoid injuries and things like that i just i do hope that they are able to compete um in a way that they don't feel like they're they're going to destroy their knees or their wrists because of that because i don't i above all i feel like i don't want them to jeopardize their the rest of their the season and there's going to be tons of tournaments where they for sure are going to be able to play with a little bit less um, restrictions. Um, So, yeah, I guess that's probably my own, that's my own conclusion to this.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, well said, Andre. Um, Yeah. Mm. And you know, some, because mental health is equally as important as physical and, uh, you know, not just COVID, I think you hit on, you hit that very well. I think it's not just only COVID symptoms. So I think, uh, you know, I mean, we touched on everything, here, but what did come out yesterday was the ATP Cup draw. And we saw we saw a more, how do you say, a more condensed version of the field that we saw last year. Uh, but this year we have four groups and three countries in every group. And, uh, you know, Group A plays Group D in the semifinals and Group B plays Group C. And I think uh, this draw is quite, quite something. We could see a lot of top 10 matchups, uh, on the men's side at least, the first week right right, out, right, off the bang. And I think uh, a lot of these players were in Adelaide because they're the top players. Um, some of them, a lot of these players, looks like in the draw, will have had their five hours of practice. Um, looks like Kane Ishikori, I feel bad for him. He's on Japan in Group D and he's uh, stuck in that 14-day quarantine and he's been so injury-prone as of late the yeah, last couple of seasons sure. and he's just uh, not sure how he's going to come out of that at all in a tough spot there. But um, you know at least he gets some high level competition right away but well, i don't know i mean what was your impression looking at this draw do you think how do you feel about these players playing these matches five days in a row and how do you feel about the atp cup uh, i guess just just in generally what's your what's your viewpoint on it
0: i mean i i love uh group things i feel like uh, especially growing up in south america i think soccer is in my in my in my blood so i like to see those things where um, there's like a country matchup and you have to to get points to go through. And I think this is always awesome to see. Um, uh, and like the were 2 Finals, all the crazy calculations of the, the possibilities of going through are always really fun <laughs> to see. Uh, yeah. But I the ATP Cup grows on me uh, when they're playing because it's fun. But then you look at it, it's like, so what did they achieve again? It's kind of... it's, it's a, a, and what about the Davis Cup? It's that's the only thing because the, the, that wouldn't be such a problem if the Davis Cup weren't wasn't the exact same thing. You know what I mean? Is it doesn't even make sense in terms of uh, would we'll say for example that the Davis Cup uh, awards twice as many points in the world rankings. I don't even know if such a thing really exists, but and then the ATP is like a smaller tournament, for example, or. If something was a mix of, a mix of doubles, there's, there's just something that needs to be made a distinction about it, you know? Yeah, um,
1: I, I feel I feel the same way, honestly. There's yeah. two team events that are so jam-packed close to each other. I don't know if yeah. you heard the news, but Davis Cup will be going ahead again uh, this yeah. this year. And it's it's not the Davis Cup that where a lot of us are used to seeing. Of course, we had that one season of it in 2019 where they all play the finals in Madrid. And it's the same kind of format of like one week. But it was... You know, in my opinion, it was at the very end of the year when players are so tired and, you know, 10 days of like, there were more countries than the ATP Cup. There's no points at stake, but it counts in terms of like matches won on the season and your win-loss record, I guess. Mm -hmm. So it it does count as official ATP matches, but something about it is just, and it's privately owned by this company called Cosmos. And so there's a there's a whole other negotiations that went into that. I think PK was a soccer player. He actually owns part of that event and was in charge of the negotiation uh, of um having that under his name basically it's called the PK Cup and it's held in held in late November and it's just so close together with the ATP Cup which is like a month after and you just feel like uh you know why not just combine the two why not these organizations like work together and just have one big team event that has everything in it but here's the problem with the ATP Cup for me is that it's a little bit unfair across the board again because you look at the rankings and you look at the way they're awarding these points. If you look at last year, um, I mean, the points that you're getting are based on the ranking of the player that you beat. It's not a points per round system like they have in these other tournaments. So it basically awards the players who are high ranked, and it it does nothing for the players. And it, it like for countries like Greece, where you basically have Tsitsipas, and then you have Tsitsipas's cousin who's like 500 in the world. Sorry, whoever you are, you know, I'm sure you're good. But, (laughs) and then same thing with the countries like Bulgaria. And then you have stacked teams like Serbia and France, whose top players are like in the top 20. And you have like Russia, who's like Rublev, who's like number eight. And Medvedev is like four in the world. Like, you know, so, so it's like, what are we doing here? We're going to have one play. You're going to have like Tsitsipas's cousin play against like Medvedev and like, uh, or like Rublev and one person play against him. And it's like, it's not fair, even though they both won one match and so and and the fact that the captain can't decide the lineup that it always has to be the number one against the number one and number two against the number two i mean yeah
0: this this is the part that definitely makes it feel like um <laughs> the format is 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 more geared towards being an exhibition yeah, in, I, you know, yeah it, because it, it because is they, an exhibition the goal is like we need to get the top players to play against each other that's the only way it's just kind yes. of like they'd be like we didn't have enough of a the world two finals so we want to have the top eight play against each other again that's what <laughs> so it feels we're like we're gonna have this the atp cup happen that's <laughs> it it's, it seems like it's the only reason like for for this format yeah you know, I and, and you can see stuff. like yeah. the
1: players the players really care like if you saw last year i mean like players were smashing their rackets there was aggro galore there was like you know the, the players really really care about this event like it's and any team event we've seen it with the Hopman cup with the laver cup even the davis cup like you don't need ranking points i think if they just took out the ranking points but then again it's like what are they playing for you know and it's like because there's a whole pool of prize money and again mm-hmm. you know i think tennis australia some of that comes from them as well and from the atp as well so they're co they're collaborating on this and i think it's mm-hmm. it was a way to kind of like market the top stars again and it's almost like like why not just have like one big event you know why so many mm-hmm. and suddenly end? again next year hopen cup is coming back and so it's like yeah. if you just if the goal is just to get the top players you know figure it out like combine and have like one event that just has yeah. all the top players in it and or just make a whole like team season you know after the US open be like you know few tournaments world tour finals make that like really early like october and then have like a team event galore season but of course it's you know it's much harder than this there's a lot of yeah, there's a lot sure. that goes into it
2: yeah, I, I think I, you guys touched on some structural problems with this tournament. I do think the, the ranking thing, like the captains can't decide the lineup. I do think that makes sense because this year you have Spain and Greece in the same pool and then maybe you have Rafa playing against Tsitsipas's cousin. But I think, um, <laughs> yeah. I think yeah, it, it makes little sense with uh, with the ranking points. I don't think there was a need for it in the first place. You have Davis Cup with all its history and Hot, the Hopman Cup, which was a fun event to start the year. And now you have this that's kind of trying to be yeah. the same thing, but also not an exhibition really. And so, yeah, yeah so I, I think combined the events maybe have a team season that's a nice idea you could maybe have davis cup for the top players atp cup for some lower ranked players andre you had this yeah, great idea on twitter a while ago about how maybe you could almost have like a tennis minor league that was um kind of playing for your country based and so maybe um one of these like hopman cup ACP cup could kind of like be the beginning of that like you would have a team tournament essentially a davis cup but for all lower ranked players in that way they would get a chance to play in some more prestigious matches play for their country uh play on some show courts um while the top players played in essentially a different tournament of the same same design
1: hmm.
2: yeah
1: yeah yeah completely agree. but, yeah, but on but the other but, hand hey yeah. we can't complain i mean look at look at these matches that we're getting week you know you know in like 10 days I mean, from now, I mean, we could.
0: yeah it's one of joke, the matches like, of the year last year was a Djokovic match oh yeah, that's right. yeah that was yeah. my, was my was match of the, the year code. 2020 event was yeah. amazing yeah. So, yeah, I mean, in terms of tennis quality, there's nothing to complain about. It's just the yeah. anticipation for it, I think, is what is weird.
1: <laughs> yeah. And the fact <laughs> that, it's players, not like, yeah. that the players I mean, are going to go the next, like, two days later, and the Australian Open starts two days later? Like, really? Like, yeah. so much emotional energy, like, goes into this thing. Yeah. And then two days later, uh, you know, again, these top players are going to be at it. They're going to hope that, you know, hopefully the draw does them some favors. Um, and... You know that that they don't completely physically exert themselves. Although I don't, you know, I mean, I don't think I think they're fit enough that they can cope with it. But it's mm. still, you know, there's always that that question mark just mentally too.
0: Yeah. So just yeah. I just have one last question for you in terms of the ATP Cup because I I know that for the World Cup of soccer there is always uh, we always look for the for the group that we call it the death group in which it's probably the the hardest one uh, where you know there's a strong possibility for example of the top seed of that group falling because the group is just so strong which one which which group do you guys think is the the so-called death group of the ATP Cup this year
1: that's tough uh I would have to say maybe the Serbia group like the first group I mean I think there's Mm. Germany in there like I mean Zverev we know in a best of three set match I mean if a serve is on it's pretty hard to stop right and then uh uh, I mean Shapovalov, Shapovalov and Djokovic had a really good match last year. That was seven six in the third for Djokovic. Um and hmm. you know, Shapovalov played so well at the ATP Cup last year. And so uh you feel like maybe that could be the harder one. But then you also have like Sitsipas Nadal in one of the other groups. Um uh, maybe the Yeah, yeah I, I feel like it's it's pretty overall balanced, but I mean I mean I I, I I'm really not sure. Maybe the Serbia group? What do you think, Owen?
2: Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think you have Djokovic in there, who's the best hardcore player in the world still, I would say. You have Zverev, who on his day can serve anyone off the court. And then you have Shapovalov, uh, Oje Alisim. And I think Pospisil is maybe an alternate, so that's that's a very yeah. strong group there. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I think the matches between the top players there are going to be incredibly tight.
0: I think we got Raunich and Chapovalov for us. Oh yeah, t- oh, t- true, true, sure.
1: I was really hoping Sinner would I was really hoping Sinner could play, but instead we have we have Berrettini and Fonini who's been injured for like the last 2 years, but
2: Yeah, I I mean, I I think Group C is pretty strong as well because you have Team and then yeah. you you have Italy who's strong and then um Yeah and then um i think and then group d you've russia with rublev and uh and medvedev i think they'll win that group that's probably the least balanced one. but um yeah, yeah. i i think in group b you've you've spain great team greece is they have tsitsipas but they're one of the least deep teams in the tournament so yeah i would go with group a as the death group
1: you're not going to yeah. be watching Batista good against tsitsipas cousin
2: <laughs> sure, uh, sure to be the match of the tournament. It's gonna to be the match of the year, man. man. I, 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 I,
0: do for, uh, I do think that for I do think that Group B can have very long matches because we got um, Spanish players, were notorious from just like rallying from the baseline, and we have Diminor and Milman. In in Australia, Uh, uh, imagine
2: Melman Batista Agu. That that's got three hours
0: out written all over it. Man, it's it's like thirty rallies from beginning to end. It's like the shortest rally is going to have twenty. Right?
1: (laughs) Yeah, I was joking on Twitter. Actually, RBA and Medvedev are practice partners. For two weeks at the Australian really Open, can you imagine those backhand cross court they would rallies? Never miss those flat strokes, low margin over the net. But-, but
2: by the time they get to Melbourne, they're going to be hitting winners off of every single backhand after that practice. <laughs>
1: they should have put like they should have made that joke where they put like Bernie Sanders. Oh
2: yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, like waiting on silly.
1: waiting on the court because those rallies would be like. <laughs> like world record type rally he, like he'd 100 be 100 shots. years yeah. old
2: by the time the rally's end
1: <laughs> and, then, and then in week 2 they could like combine with 2 other players it be like Jill Simone and Gail Montfis so, and have like oh, the boy. longest ever rally ever recorded in Guinness in I don't Records. remember
0: how long it was oh, uh, 73 it was shots record. I think
1: 71
0: shots oh yeah something like yeah. that yeah, yeah, yeah. just yeah. crazy it was a really stuff. boring rally too enough yeah. enough to yeah. it it. No,
1: I don't think I made it, it was through it really,
0: <laughs> it was a really bad rally
1: yeah for sure do you guys want to hear the trivia question for you all? today? So yeah,
0: you- now we got we got a little bit of a, a new thing for you. We're going to have Vansh, who is a, a, the trivia guy uh, of the group. <laughs> he loves stats. Follow him on Twitter. You're going to see a lot of stats. And I'm always fascinated by how many stats he, yeah, he awesome. posts and parallels and things like that. And he's going to be dropping a couple trivia questions for us by the end of... Uh, the episodes so this is the first time that we're trying this out so what do you got for us so
1: this you... is kind of a two-parter but i guess i'll start with this one you know who was the last australian man to win the australian open because
0: we... it was the last australian man to choke yeah. <laughs> <the> australian <laughs> he open had uh, set
2: off in the final 2005
1: yeah he was close yeah. i mean he got there in the final but yeah lost to Safin in 2005
2: S- but- someone definitely did it after labor right they would have had to
0: where is Thomas Bjorkman from? <laughs> I want to say he Norway. Is, he's Swedish. He's Swedish. Swedish. Yeah.
1: Yeah. He. Uh, yeah.
0: Jonas Bjorkman. Right. I think that's the name of. Ah, uh, yeah. I don't yeah. remember. There's a Bjorkman that won. No, yeah. I don't even know. It was
1: a. It was yeah. Some, somewhere in the 2000s. <laughs> it was a. It was, a Johansson. it was Thomas Johansson? Johansson. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think uh, he he won it that year. He beat Safin in the final. It was crazy. Like I don't.
2: Hmm. Wait. It was you, is Johansson Australian?
1: No.
0: Oh, okay. Johansson is yeah. also
1: Swedish. Okay. So. <laughs>
0: yeah. I knew it was a Swedish guy, like, or like a, a guy from then. Yeah. Man, um, Th- this is tough. It was, it it was definitely 1990s?
2: pre-1990, right? Because that decade yeah, was like okay, Sampras and Agassi and Courier winning it.
1: It was, it was pre-1990s. I'll give you that. I
0: think it was in the 70s, somewhere in the 70s, I think, right? 79, I would guess. Yeah, your you're, you're,
1: you're, you're years are close. But yeah. It's somewhere there
0: man i don't even i don't think i even know them any australian players margaret court no S <laughs> men right
1: yes yes and it was actually two australians in the final but i'll tell you the guy two who
0: australians? won it oh sure. thomas woodford woodbridge no Woodruff. i mean
1: the woodies the woodies <laughs> played doubles but uh it yeah, was actually <laughs> it was actually mark edmondson back in 1976
0: 76 mark edmondson and
1: he beat john newcomb in the final
0: okay a, I've heard of him he as uh, uh, <laughs> It's yeah, it's really tough because those guys are like <laughs> the '60s, '70s legends, and I'm yeah. not extremely familiar with those I mean,
1: this guy when he came to the Australian Open, he was not a legend. He was 212 in the world.
0: Oh wow! He's
1: the lowest-ranked player ever to win a Grand Slam tournament since the mm-hmm. rankings were introduced. But so I mentioned that was a two-parter. That was actually also there's three men in the Open era whose first ATP title was a Grand Slam. Mark oh, uh, Mark Edmondson. I saw, I saw that. Mark Edmondson is one of them. So that was his first ever ATP title, and it was an Australian Open. Yeah, since then, I know, you
0: know I know the second one was Gustavo Kuerten, 1997 Roland Garros.
1: Yep, you missed one just before that, though.
0: Yeah. Or, uh, as in, as in the second, not chronologically.
1: Yes. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. He was also the youngest player to ever to win a Grand Slam. By the way.
0: Was it Guga? No. Oh, is it a it the, the youngest ladder? men? Was Roland it arrows? a Chang?
1: No, I think, Owen, you, you said it just before.
0: Okay, uh, M- Matt Spilander, uh, I think
2: yes. he won Roland Garros at 17. I can't oh, remember yeah, the yes. year. Yes. He
1: won Roland Garros at 17 in 1982, and that was his first yeah. first ATP title, which was also a grand slam. Yeah. W-
2: was he, he younger than was Michael uh, Chang, Chang when he won, he won it? Because he was 17 as well, yeah. Yeah,
1: yeah. Mike, Michael Chang was also 17, but he is the second, yep. uh, second youngest.
0: Okay, my God. Hmm. <laughs> Imagine winning a major at 17 years old dang i keep i keep i keep thinking of that like for example when martina Hing is one at it's 16 it's, yeah, it's and it's just number one.
1: i didn't even it's, get my license until i was 18 so when, when I, I was 16
0: slammed. i have i had no idea what i was going to do with my life yeah. already, <laughs> like i'm you imagine you hanging out with your your, your guys like at a in high school and, and be like hey what you do for i'm yeah i'm the number one tennis player in the world it's not in not even in school uh, well
2: when i was 16 yeah. i think i'd been playing tennis for three years and i still couldn't hit a forehand <laughs> so like, winning a major at 16 oh my gosh like that that is not going to be replicated for yeah. such a long time
0: yeah so yeah uh if you got the uh the trivia question, right, that um, Varnish asked. I think he actually posted those on Twitter before. Uh, so if you know that, don't cheat. Uh, if you, so, um, But let us know on Twitter or on our personal accounts or on uh, Tennis and Beagles account that we have now. And we plan to be extremely active on this um, in the next few uh, months or so. So go and follow us. Uh, we do hope to um, improve the podcast quality and engage a lot more with all of you guys uh thanks for listening thanks much for the trivia questions and for bringing all the information thanks uh owen for um being pretty much the voice of impartiality in this podcast um and uh yeah thank you guys see you later bye